All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28? For the last four years. <laughs> First service laughed, too. You're supposed to say, we wish it would last four more years. But for the last four years, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew. Now, during that time, we have seen the birth of Jesus. We have studied his ministry, which contained miracles that helped thousands of people who were sick, paralyzed, handicapped, even demon-possessed. These miracles also served as signs to point to the fact that Jesus was the true Messiah of Israel. Because they had a lot of false messiahs that came down the pike. God said, you know my true Messiah. He'll have the power to cast out demons, heal the sick, and so on. So Jesus' miracles also pointed to him being the true Messiah of Israel. We studied carefully his teachings, including the three great discourses Matthew records, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, the Seven Kingdom Parables in chapter 13, and then, of course, the Olivet Discourse talking about the signs of his return in chapter 24. We also saw the animosity of the Jewish leadership against Jesus and how they eventually arrested him and then convinced Pilate to have him crucified. And then finally, we saw all of this culminate with his resurrection three days later on Sunday morning. Now, as believers, we can study and understand all of this. But if we don't grasp the last few verses of Matthew's gospel, guess what? We're going to have missed the whole point. The point of Matthew's gospel, and in fact, the point of the entire New Testament primarily, is that we might come to know and believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, that he is the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, sent here by the Father to die for our sins, that we might believe on him for salvation. So first of all, our study of Matthew's gospel has been personal, designed that you might accept the great invitation, which we studied in Matthew 11, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, tantamount to saying, Believe in me and be saved, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, as important as, as salvation is, it isn't an end in itself. Salvation always then leads to service. We have not been saved to sit. We have been saved to serve. And you see, accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is both deeply personal, but at the same time, it is highly purposeful. The purpose in all of this is that we can fulfill what we have come to call the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Look, you don't have to read far in the Bible to understand that throughout all the pages of Scripture, we see the heart of God expressed for the lost, his concern for the lost. The salvation of the lost has been the passion of the heart of God ever since he first called, since he called the first sinner to himself, which was Genesis 3, verse 9, Adam. To his final invitation to lost mankind in Revelation 22, verse 17, where he said, Come and let everyone who is thirsty drink of the water of life freely. We have seen the heart of God for the lost consistently affirmed throughout the pages of the New Testament. Turn to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Then 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, where Paul said that God desires all men, all women, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And of course, the last one, you shouldn't have to turn to it, you should all have it memorized. John 3.16, 1 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell but have everlasting life. Guys, this is the whole purpose for Jesus coming to the earth. He said, I came to the earth to seek and to save those who are lost. And now he is passing the baton of this all-important ministry to us as his church at the end of Matthew's gospel when he said, in the light of all that you have seen and heard, all that I have taught, now go and make disciples. Mark records it this way. He said, go into all the world and preach the good news to every creature. As you study the New Testament, nearly all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus end with him telling those who were present to go and announce the good news. Look, guys, there's only one reason the Lord allows this church to remain on the earth. I mean, once we're saved, why are we here? I mean, and if you're like me, the more you read the news, the more you wish we'd blast off soon, okay? But there's only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on the earth, and it's to fulfill its mission, which is to go into all the world proclaiming the good news of salvation. That's why we're here. I mean, I know it's great to get together and fellowship and sing moving songs to the Lord and even share a meal once in a while. That's all great. Uh, and it's all part of what it means to be the body of Christ. But our purpose, our mission, is to go into the world and make disciples. However, the church in America, for the most part, has lost sight of this, choosing to focus on everything it seems except the main thing. One pastor had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, This central message of Scripture pertains to the central mission of the people of God, a mission that, tragically, many Christians do not understand or are unwilling to fulfill. It seems obvious that some Christians think little about their mission in this world, except in regard to their own personal needs. They attend services and meetings when it is convenient, take what they feel like taking, and have little concern for anything else. They are involved in the church only to the extent that it serves their own desires. It escapes both their understanding and their concern that the Lord has given his church a supreme mission and that he calls every believer to be an instrument in fulfilling that mission, end quote. Well, Spurgeon put it this way. He said, and I quote, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. End quote. All right, having said all of that as background, let's focus on the final section of Matthew's Gospel, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You know what we have here, I think? We have a little church service going on, okay? We see the disciples of Jesus coming to him at an appointed time and place, just like we do each week in coming to church at an appointed time and an appointed place. We also see that his disciples worshipped him which we as the people of God do when we come to church. We even see how some of his followers doubted him, as do many who come to church. You say, what do you mean by that? Doubt him in what way? Well, I think many Christians come to church and doubt whether or not the Lord can really meet their needs, fix their marriage, heal their body, or even make them happy. For too many in the church, they are completely preoccupied with themselves and their problems. Are you saying my problems are unimportant? No. No. Just don't make them all-consuming. 
You see, it's not wrong to ask God to meet your personal needs. He wants you to do that. Just remember that the more you focus on yourself, the less concerned you're going to be about others, especially the lost. And this is the whole point of what we're talking about. We get so preoccupied with our needs, we lose sight of the fact that there are people all around us going to hell for eternity. We are to be mindful of those who are lost constantly. We may not be evangelists called like some to go out and preach to thousands or even go door to door, but we can certainly pray. We can certainly give to the work of the ministry. And when God opens the door, we can certainly be a light and give the truth to anyone who wants to know why we're a Christian and what that life means to us. Now, you might be thinking, in what way did some of Jesus' disciples back then doubt him? Well, it seems that some of them doubted if it was really Jesus risen from the dead when they saw him. Now, that could be because they were so filled with joy, they couldn't believe what they were saying. I just know, though, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is one of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Deny it, and you cannot be saved. Paul put it this way in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Conversely, to not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ means you won't be saved. Now, I know you might be thinking, well, these disciples didn't actually deny that Jesus had risen from the dead. They just doubted. Let me say this. Doubt is often a younger version of denial. In other words, doubt will grow into full-blown unbelief if not dealt with properly. Now, certainly, I'm not speaking about the 11. Okay, I know they were true believers. I know that they're going to sit on thrones judging Israel someday. So, you know, they may have had some initial doubts based on being overjoyed or whatever. But we know that these men were genuinely saved. And again, eventually, uh, Matthias was chosen to, to complete the 12, to round it out the 12. Although some of us, including myself, believe Paul was actually the 12th apostle but his time had not come yet uh they were not really spirit filled and they rushed to fill judas's place when really i think god had paul uh, who was coming down the road but hey whatever we know these 11 though were genuine believers let me just say this about honest doubts honest doubts which are different from willful unbelief honest doubts are sometimes a part of the normal growing process of the christian life and often stem from simply a lack of information and the way we deal with that is to faithfully and systematically teach young disciples God's word, pointing out the evidence or the proof to substantiate why our faith is not a blind leap in the dark as some try to tell us. The atheists, look, their faith is a blind leap into the dark. Peter said we have many infallible proofs to prove or as evidence to prove why our faith is sound. I mean, we talked about some of the proofs of the resurrection last week. But look, what I really want you to see in these last few verses of Matthew's gospel is what Jesus said to these disciples when they came to him because it becomes the purpose, the mission of the church. Verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. First of all, I want you to notice what the main purpose of the church is not, okay, is not. 
Jesus didn't tell his disciples to go into all the world and feed the hungry, clothe the naked, or heal disease. He said, go make disciples. Now, certainly, in the course of making disciples, we can and should do those other things. It's just not the main mission of the church. Today, unfortunately, you would be amazed at how many churches in our country think that the mission of the church is to curate, is to focus on environmental issues like global warming, and bring social justice to the world, which is Christianized socialism. The problem with all of that is that it's foreign to the real mission of the church as given to her by her founder when he said to go into all the world and make disciples. I mean, how clever the devil is and how deceived the church is in these last days to allow itself to make social issues the focus instead of the eternal souls of men and women who are lost. Look, I have no problem with missionaries going into the mission field and digging wells so that people can have clean water to drink building schools so they can have an education, teaching them modern farming techniques so they can fill their stomachs with good food. I have no problem with that. But to do that and not give them what they really need, which is the gospel, because some mission organizations, they see that as their mission, just helping people socially, they don't preach the gospel. What you do is you give people clean water to drink, a stomach that's full of good food, and you launch them into a Christless eternity. That's not helping them. That's not helping them. Now, There are many who say that the Great Commission is built around four commands. Go, make, as in make disciples, baptize, and teach. However, in the Greek, there is only one command in the Great Commission, and that is make disciples. That one command is embedded in four all, quote-unquote, four all statements or declarations. First of all, Jesus possesses all authority. Number two, He sends us to all nations. Number three, we are to teach people all he has commanded us. And number four, as we do, we are to know that he will be with us all ways. Or in other words, all the days we are on on the earth doing what he has commanded us to do and reaching the lost with the gospel. Let's spend the rest of our time this morning on the first one because this one requires the most explanation, the most comment, and then we'll finish up Matthew's Gospel next week by looking at the rest of these things that actually uh, constitute together the Great Commission. The first one, though, Jesus possesses all authority. Verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute. What did Jesus mean when he said, All authority has been given to me? I mean, isn't Jesus God? Doesn't God already have all authority? Well, certainly he does. But Jesus is speaking incarnationally. He's he's not speaking of the glory he had before he became a man. He's talking about coming down from heaven, taking on a human body, and defeating the devil, which means taking back from the devil what he has stolen from man, and someday reigning on the earth visibly from Jerusalem. That's what he's talking about. In fact, let's turn to just a couple of these. How about Psalm 8? It's important that we understand this authority, okay? In Psalm 8, and again, I'm talking about Jesus' mission in coming down to die for our sins, to redeem us back to God, but not just us, the whole creation, really. But in Psalm 8, starting in verse 5, we read, For you have made him a little lower than the angels. 
You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Jesus Christ was made a little lower than the angels when he became a man. He became a man to die for our sins. But then, of course, he was exalted back to the Father and someday will reign in glory as all things are placed under his subjection. Psalm 2, verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, speaking of a future time during the millennial kingdom. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And what that is saying is this. When Jesus Christ comes back to reign on the earth, he is not going to tolerate injustice, crime, violence of any kind, corruption. As we look at our society, we are degenerating more and more into a violent, lawless society. More and more. And it all goes along with what Jesus said that, uh, or excuse me, I think it was Paul who said that um, in the last days, evil men would grow worse and worse. Violence would be on the rise. And the only comfort I have is knowing that someday Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to reign. And you know what? <laughs> Coming from Chicago, we have no concept of what it means to have righteous a righteous person reigning, okay, on the throne. No corruption, no bribes, you know, complete righteousness, not allowing violent crimes, uh, not worried about the ACLU uh, suing because, you know, Jesus popped a few guys who were really, you know, out there doing crime and everything else. No, just takes the scepter, bang, pops them, they're gone. And I tell you what, what a world that's going to be, to be able to walk the streets at night and not be afraid, to sit under our own fig trees, the Bible says, and not be afraid because people are not going to make war anymore. We're going to take our swords and spears and beat them into plowshares and pruning hooks, and we're not going to study and do war anymore. The king will be on the throne. He won't tolerate injustice. He won't tolerate crazy people trying to conquer other people in the name of some misguided warped concept of, you know, whatever. Isaiah 9. We sang it this morning. It's a great passage around Christmas time that we sing and read and so on. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Yes, this kingdom government that's coming. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father doesn't mean Jesus is the Father. He's not. He's the Son. Everlasting Father in the Hebrew means source of all. He created all things, the idea. Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over, over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so when Jesus said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He was simply saying that his authority was given to him by his Father in heaven over all the earth as Jesus went to the cross, died, and redeemed the world back 
to God. And it really speaks of Jesus' authority over the new creation. Over the new creation. Adam was given authority over the first creation, Genesis 2.15. Authority he turned over to Satan when he disobeyed God in the garden and obeyed the devil. Adam didn't realize at that moment a transaction was going to take place. I don't think him and Eve knew, you know, they must have known enough to be responsible for what they had done. They knew God said don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They went ahead and did that because the devil deceived them. But they didn't realize, I'm convinced, a transaction would take place at that very instant. When Adam especially disobeyed God and obeyed the devil, well, he transferred ownership of the earth into the hands of the devil because God gave it to Adam and then, of course, later on Eve, but gave it to Adam to tend, watch over, to have dominion over it. But he rebelled, gave it to Satan through his rebellion, and Satan became man's new master, earth's new owner. And he continues to control this world even to this day, although his day is coming. His days are numbered, but he is called the God of this world, even to this day. And um, that's what happened to the original creation. The one that God created, Genesis chapter 1, records how each of the six days of creation, God said it was good, it was good, it was good. Genesis 1.31, he stepped back and looked at all he had done and said it's all very good. So God made a good creation. People say, you know, God's such a loving God. He's a good God like you Christians say. Why is there so much evil in the world? Hey, don't blame God for that. Okay? He made a good world and gave man a good thing called free will, and man exercised his free will and rebellion against God and brought upon himself all these horrible consequences. But now God is calling a people to himself who will live in a new creation. The old creation got corrupted, but he's going to bring a new creation into being. He's got a new king. The devil is the god of this present world system. But there is a king coming who has already bought and paid for this world, redeeming it back to God. Jesus Christ, he is going to come someday, and he is going to reign over a new creation. And anyone who wants to be a part of that kingdom can bow the knee to Christ right now, confessing their sins and receiving him as their king. And someday we will be taken with him to be a member of his kingdom outwardly when he establishes upon the earth. Now, we know that the Bible says Jesus came to the earth to destroy the works and the authority of the devil. Again, to take back what Satan had usurped from man, but not to renovate the corrupted creation, okay? Uh, you think of renovation. You know, you take some dilapidated building or house and you know, put a little paint in there and uh, fix up a few things. You know, okay, looks better, all right, but often not so great. God is not about renovating a corrupt creation. He's about redeeming it and then recreating it, making it brand new. That's what it's all about. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, here's what Paul said about the creation in verse 20 and 21. He personifies the creation like it's a living thing, okay, a person. And he says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So Paul is saying, look, even the creation, when man fell, it didn't just corrupt the human race, it corrupted all of God's creation. And Paul said, look, the creation is like a person also wanting to be redeemed, wanting to go back before the curse, before the fall, a paradise state, you know, where there was no corruption, no animals eating each other, no death and decay. And we see how that's coming. Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. Well, after the millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ, who was now holding all things together by the word of his power, he created all things by that word, and he's holding all things together by the word of his power. But at one point, he's going to let go. And you're going to have uh, an atomic explosion because all the protons in every nucleus of every atom, they're going to repel each other, just like they're supposed to do. They're going to repel. Every atom in the universe will split. You'll have atomic fission, an atom bomb the size of the universe. Peter says everything is going to vaporize in great, with a great noise and melt in fervent zillion-degree heat. And then the Lord's going to recreate the heavens, recreate the earth. He's going to give to us a new creation. The old womb was corrupted. He's going to make something brand new. And a new city called New Jerusalem, where the redeemed will live forever and ever. So we look forward to that day. The first Adam was defeated by the devil. The last Adam, as Paul called him, Jesus Christ, was victorious over the devil. Turn to Colossians 2. Okay, look, it seems a little tedious because a lot of this stuff you know. The problem is, as Peter said, there's a lot of things we know that we either forget or never act on in the way of God's truth. We need to understand what we have. This authority that was given to Jesus by the Father, he's handing it over to us. It's important that we understand all that's involved. But first of all, the Father has handed the authority to rule over to Christ because Christ was victorious over Satan and his demons. Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul said, Having disarmed, Jesus Christ, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. What he's saying. So when Jesus said that all authority has been given to me, that would include, listen, all authorities being made subject to him. All authority given to me, yes, including all authorities being made subject to him. You see, when the Bible speaks of, about heavenly powers or authorities, it usually means spiritual or demonic entities. And when it speaks of Christ's victory through his death and resurrection, it usually once again has those powers and authorities in mind. Turn to Ephesians 6. Listen to what Paul said. Verse 12. He said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is saying that, look, we don't really fight against people. We're not fighting against, you know, Hollywood, the liquor industry, the gaming industry, pornographers, and so on. We're fighting against the devil who has taken these people captive, who are now doing his will, but we ought to be praying for them. We ought to be loving them. As Paul says, don't argue, okay, but in humility and gentleness, all right? Teach people what God's word is really saying because only God's word has the power to smash the prisons that the devil has locked these people in. These prisons are their own ideologies, and only God's word is strong enough to smash the prison to let the captives go free. That's what we do. That's the gospel, okay? But these folks are not our enemies. The, the real enemy is the devil and his demons. The devil and his demons. Paul calls them authorities, rulers, principalities, powers. Uh, there are, there's rankings, okay? Just like God has got angels that are in ranks, okay? I mean, Michael being one of the top guys. Uh, Gabriel, one of the top guys, okay? Then you have... 
down you have your you know your generals and lieutenants and colonels and so on okay and your grunts whatever those are uh you know but the devil's got his little army too and they're divided into these rankings where paul calls them you know authorities rulers powers and so on the spiritual forces of wickedness in the spirit realm how about ephesians 1 verse 20 and 21 talking about how the father exerted his power in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, Jesus, at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the, in the one to come. So Jesus Christ, when it says all authority has been given to me, it also means all authorities, principalities, powers, authorities, all demonic entities, including the devil himself, have been made subject to Christ. Hang on to that thought. It's very important, okay? But the Father has given all this authority to Jesus to be the king over the new creation, which technically, guys, began at the cross. No, Jesus has not come back physically yet to take possession of this world and to reign visibly from Jerusalem. But the new creation, the new covenant started at the cross. The word covenant, guys, means to cut and in the Old Testament, they would ratify a covenant by cutting animals in two, and then the two parties would walk through the animal pieces. It was a blood covenant. The New Covenant, the New Testament, uh, began with Christ going to the cross and shedding his blood, which ratified the New Covenant, which started the new creation. When everybody in this room gave your, when you gave your heart to Christ, you immediately became a what? New creation, didn't you? You're a new creation living in an old creation. But that new creation outwardly is coming. But right now you have been made a new creation because you've applied the blood of Christ to your life. Now that brings with it all kinds of wonderful benefits. A lot of benefits that a lot of Christians have no idea of. I mean, I've heard more than one story about somebody who was living in poverty, who had a rich uncle somewhere who died and left them a fortune, but the person kept living in poverty because they didn't know they had a rich uncle that left them a fortune. They were technically rich, yet living like paupers. It's like a lot of Christians. We have been given great wealth in Christ through what he has done. We still live like paupers, defeated paupers, because we don't know what we have in Christ. And if we know, we just don't believe it applies to me. Look, Jesus Christ is the king over the new creation. A king has authority over his creation, which means the right to use power. A king has authority and can delegate that power and authority to those who represent him and who serve him. That's exactly what our king did. Exactly what Jesus Christ did for us who are his servants. Turn to Luke 10. It's a little preview of what was coming. In Luke 10, Jesus sent out his disciples, two by two, 70 altogether. They went out ministering, because he knew he wasn't going to be around much longer, so he needed to get these guys going on their own out there and, you know, and all of that. And so they come back in Luke 10, pick it up in verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Even the demons are subject to us in what? Your name. What does that mean? 
It just simply means who Christ is. In the victory he has won, see, even the demons are now subject to us because Jesus Christ has given us authority over the enemy. As he said in another place, he has bound the strong man. He said, you can't, you can't loot a strong man's house unless a stronger man binds him. The strong man's house is the devil's territory, the world that he is the God of. Jesus Christ, the stronger man, of course, God incarnate, defeated Satan. He bound him, which means we now, in his power and victory and authority, can go out and take captives from him for the glory of God. The gospel is powerful, and God has given it to us to use in the power of the Spirit to set men and women free who have been taken captive by the devil. And so this opening statement by Jesus, all authority belongs to me, now go and make disciples, speaks of the power to do the work our King is commissioning us to do in his name. And again, guys, authority speaks of the right to use power. The right to use power. Doesn't mean we have power innately in us, like a police officer. They don't have any power in and of themselves. But they represent or are working for a municipality, like a city. And the city has power over the people that live in the city. And they have delegated some of that authority to the police who then serve the city in keeping law and order. But the police officer, you know, has authority, but that was delegated to them. The same is true with us. Our Savior has power. That power was delegated to us. And the authority to use it, by the way. In fact, Jesus promised us this authority, this power, I should say, at the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Why don't you turn there? Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 more days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom. Before he ascended back to his father, he said to them, Now, you have to understand something, guys. These men had been with him for three and a half years. They had heard him preach the gospel hundreds, if not thousands of times. They knew it backwards and forward. They knew it cold. They could recite it in their sleep, I'm sure. If it was just a matter of intellectual information, he would have said, go now and start preaching the gospel. At the end of Luke's gospel, you're not ready to go and preach it yet. Oh, but Lord, we know, we know the gospel. Yes, you do. Lord, we can recite it in our sleep. Yes, you can. But you're not ready to go out and preach it until you've received the power. Now go back to Jerusalem and you wait there until the power is given to you, until you're endued with power. As he says here in Luke 24, verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Of course, that promise was fulfilled 10 days later on the Feast of Pentecost. As the disciples were in Jerusalem, in an upper room somewhere, they were praying, suddenly the Spirit of God was poured out. He said earlier, in the, the night before his crucifixion, I'm going to return back to the Father, and I'm going to pray, and he will send you another helper, the Spirit of truth. So Jesus sends back to the Father. Ten days later, here comes the Holy Spirit being poured out. And the Spirit is poured out upon each of them. And of course, you know that the evidence was the tongues of fire above each of their heads, speaking in language that they never learned, praising God. But they heard this sound of a mighty rushing wind like a hurricane blowing through town. They heard the sound of this thing. 
but didn't see any of the effects. Didn't things weren't blowing around and you know patio furniture and uh, and kids' toys and whatever you know. They, but they heard this this loud roar of this wind, and of course it was the spirit who came upon each of them, and empowered them now to do the work that the Lord had called the king had called them to do, which was to primarily go into all the world, preach the good news. Now there are those that say, well, you know, they needed that power because they didn't have the full Bible yet. But we, we have the completed canon of Scripture. And these were simple fishermen, farmers, you know. We have our degrees now. We have our universities. We prepare men and women for ministry through our spectacular wisdom of the Scriptures and so on. They don't need the power of the Spirit. We have the sheepskin we give them. We authorize them to go into ministry. Yeah, that's working out real well, by the way. Look, I'm thankful we have, the, we have the completed canon of Scripture. But at no time did Jesus ever say that that would replace the power. Now, look, Jesus Christ taught them the Word of God. They had the Word in front of them. He is the Word incarnate. But they still needed the power. Remember, after the Spirit came upon them in Acts 2, Peter preaches the first. The place was packed. There were pilgrims from all over the known world in town for the Feast of Pentecost. Peter stands up. Of course, the crowd gathers. They, they, they hear the wind. Okay, They run to the place where they feel it's kind of coming from the sound. Here's the disciples. They're all speaking in these different languages from all over the world, praising God. At first, these guys thought these disciples were drunk. Peter stood up and, again, preaches the first spirit-filled sermon of the church age. He says, no, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, says the Lord. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. <laughs> I haven't started dreaming dreams yet, so I think I'm still more on the young men side. But, <laughs> but I'm going to pour my spirit out in the last days because the work is going to be great. Time will be limited. And Peter preached this dynamic sermon, basically cutting them to the heart by telling them, you know, you crucified your own Messiah. He was the one that the Scriptures told was coming. Here was Jesus. He did everything the Scriptures said Messiah was going to do. And yet, when it was all said and done, you guys hung him on a cross and killed him. Now, I know you did it in ignorance. And, and, and they were like cut to the heart and said, men and brethren, what do we do? And what did Peter say in chapter 2, verse 38 and 9 of Acts? He said, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In other words, get saved. Get saved. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise. Listen to that. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. What promise are you talking about, Peter? The promise Jesus gave to the disciples in the upper room. I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to go back to the Father, but I'm going to send to you another helper, the Holy Spirit. Because look, guess what? I'm sending you into all the world. Fishermen, farmers, simple blue-collar guys. You're going to go into all the world and preach the gospel. What do you mean, Lord? Athens? Alexandria? The imperial city Rome? Are you kidding? Who's going to listen to us? You're not going to go in your own strength. You're going to go in my power. Okay? And by the way, this promise, Peter is saying, wasn't just for us in the upper room. He said it was to you, those guys who were saved that day, your children, your grandchildren, all the way down to the church age, as many as the Lord our God will call to be saved, the, the power of the Holy Spirit is available to them. As my pastor used to like to say, the power of the Holy Spirit 
Don't leave home without it. <laughs> Look, this promise of power to do the work of winning the lost is a promise that Jesus affirmed one last time before he sent it back to the Father. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, But you shall go back to Jerusalem. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And when that happens, you will be then qualified, empowered, endued, whatever you want to say, with the power you need to go into all the world and preach the good news to everybody. That's what we need. Guys, this is where the Great Commission starts. Okay, This is where the Great Commission starts. We haven't really technically looked at the Great Commission. We've just looked at the authority and power to go out and preach it. But we need that, right? These guys walked with the king himself for three and a half years. They weren't even ready to go out and preach until they received the power of the Holy Spirit. I just want you to understand, and we'll look at the actual Great Commission next time. It's pretty self-explanatory after this first point, okay? But here's what I want to leave you with. We have been given authority over the devil and his demons. There is no reason why a Christian should lay there and let the devil kick their teeth in when they've been given the power in Je Jesus won the victory. We don't need to pray, Lord, give me victory. You have victory in Christ. Lord, give me power. All power is in him. And you are in him. You believe in him. The goal of many Christians today, and I think it's because they haven't been taught or just aren't willing, willing to embrace and apply by faith the things that are theirs in Christ, the goal for many is just to hang on by their fingertips, just to survive. If I could just, if I could just survive. You know, till the Lord comes back. Survive. He wants you to thrive. You're more than conquerors through Christ who loves you. We don't face the devil in our own strength. We face him in the power of God's strength. We're in Christ. The life that I now live, I don't live in my own strength. I live in the power. I live by faith in the power of the Son of God who loves me and lives his life through me, right? I was telling first service. It's a little chilly today, so I brought my gloves, okay? in my coat. If I was to get one of those gloves and put on the podium here, okay, and I said to that glove, glove, pick up my Bible. It would just lay there. I could say, glove, pick up my Bible. It would just lay there. I could yell and scream, demanding the glove pick up the Bible. Nothing would happen. If I was to take my hand and put it in the glove, now the glove can do anything my hand can do. We are like empty gloves. In ourselves, we're impotent. We have no power to do anything. But if by faith we allow God to place his hand in us, live his life through us, we can do anything the Lord God Almighty wants us to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the life that I now live, Paul said, I live by faith. By faith. All authority has been given to me. All power, Jesus said. I'm giving it to you. It is not going to help you one iota if you don't believe it. If you don't believe what I'm telling you, if you, don't play, if you don't apply it by faith to your life and say, I'm tired of being defeated. I'm tired of being depressed. I'm tired of feeling like I'm just holding on for dear life. I'm not thriving. I'm not conquering. I'm just surviving. I'm tired of that. Lord Jesus, I need you to live your life through me. I need you to live your life through me. Jesus is going to say, Amen. Now, draw close to me. Fill your mind with my word, which is what you, it's your resources in me. And then, by faith, 
Ask me to live my life through you. And trust me, this coming year could be an incredible year if we all would just understand what God has given to us in Christ. The Great Commission, it's his work. It's not mine. I just need him to live his life through me. May God give us the grace to understand. When Jesus said, all authority is mine, all power, and I've given it to you, there's no reason for us to walk around defeated. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you, Jesus, have won the victory. You've conquered the devil. You've defeated death. And now as your people, Lord, because we are in you, well, Lord, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Lord Jesus, will you live your life through us this week, this coming year? Lord, will you give us the understanding of what we have in you and the faith of children to apply it into our life, to put it to our account, that we start drawing on the resources that you've deposited in our accounts because we know you. We're, we, we are connected to you. We're one with you. Lord, we want to go out and be fruitful. We want to see people saved. Give us a heart for the lost. And Lord, give us the grace to go out there to speak your truth with power and boldness. That Lord, men and women who have been taken captive by the devil would be set free to become your servants, your children. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to continue to bless now our uh, final study in Matthew's Gospel. And then, of course, to give us, give us grace to apply all that we have learned. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.